Well, let me invite you to remain standing out of reverence for God and His perfect and powerful Word and grab your Bible if you have one and turn to Luke chapter 3 is where we will be together this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles in front of you and turn to page 858 is where we will be together. Our series of studies in Luke's Gospel continues apace this morning as we want to look at the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 3. So let me get us going by reading our text and then pray once again briefly for God to bless our study of His Word and then we will begin our study together. So let us hear now as God is speaking to us through His Word. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I did not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And John said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also came and said, And we, what shall we do? John said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we come to You now and ask that You would speak to us through Your Word. Speak, O Lord, for your people are listening. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of our heart, be pleasing in your sight, O God, we pray this morning. Give us an eagerness to hear from you, a faithful heart to follow after you. Help me to preach as I ought, with boldness, with clarity as a dying man unto dying people. 
And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of God's great occasional works in church history is the work of revival. Uh, that time when God blesses his ordinary means of grace with extraordinary success and extraordinary power. And in his book on preaching, John Piper has a short chapter where he surveys God's work of revival through preaching in church history. And so he notices men like Thomas Chalmers, Chalmers' blood earnestness in preaching Christ. He turns his attention to the United States and notices William Sprague and his seriousness in Bible exposition. And then he also mentions Charles Haddon Spurgeon and his reverence and handling God's word. And then eventually Dr. Piper points his pen at modern preaching and says that very few pulpit ministries today will ever be used by God to bring about revival. For as Dr. Piper writes, it is surely a sign of the age that we preachers are far more adept at humor than tears. Laughter seems to have replaced repentance as the goal of many preachers. And if my observation and experience is in any way valuable, I would lead myself to think he is quite right. A far better and more biblical example of revival preaching comes to us in our text this morning as for the first time in Luke's Gospel we get to notice and have our first glimpse into the ministry of John the Baptist. I'm sure that many of you know that we live in an age in which preaching is more readily available than any other time in history. And I'm also sure many of you know that not all preaching is the same. Some preaching... God blesses, some preaching God abandons, some preaching God uses, some preaching God refuses, and John's preaching in our text is the kind of preaching that brings Christ down to earth in a chariot of fire. So full of Christ is this man of God so long ago, and so I hope that even as we I come to this text that we do come with a heightened sense of hope and expectancy for what God will communicate to us because John's ministry, John's message has much to tell us about the nature of preaching for revival, laboring for Christ's glory, serving the Lord in faithfulness. And his theme is so simple. You can summarize it with one word, repentance. And so even the main theme that I want us to look at in our study together this morning is the simple truth that you must repent to receive Jesus Christ. Repentance is required for anyone to come to Christ. So kids, do you know what it means to repent? I hope that you'll pay attention this morning and hopefully by the end of our time, you'll have a good idea of what it means to live in repentance. Students, what you need to hear this morning from John the Baptist preaching, among the many things you need to hear this morning, is that John is after a repentance that is not just a one-time profession, but is in fact a very lifestyle lived before Christ Jesus. And you might even be in here this morning in our are visiting us at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. 
I am delighted that you have chosen to be with us. I pray that you would simply see this morning the urgency and necessity of repentance in order that you might receive Jesus Christ. So the first thing I want to look at together with you this morning is John's ministry of repentance, uh, particularly what it says about his ministry being one of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then secondly, we want to give attention to his message of repentance and discover what, if any, challenges it might present to us today in the 21st century. So first then, in verses 1 through 6, his ministry of repentance. If you just scan your eyes through verses 1 and 2 once again, you'll see Luke doing what he's apt to do as a careful historian. He lines out a series of seven different political figures who were at power at the time of John's appearance. And there are several different reasons that Luke surely does this, the first of which is he wants us to remember that the story of John and thus the story of Jesus is one that actually took place in history. It took place at a particular moment when particular people were in political power. And even if you studied any of these seven names at any great depth, what you would begin to see is each one of these rulers that Luke mentions was known for pride, for violence, for self-indulgence, Luke is painting this picture that at the time of John's appearance in the wilderness, the political moment in and around Israel was one that was marked by pronounced darkness. But God in his mercy is beginning to shine a light into that darkness, isn't he? Notice the end of verse 2. We're told that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And I hope that might even be something of an encouragement to some of you in here this morning. Uh, You might look out upon the world and believe it seems so bleak. Uh, Things are just falling apart. I want to exhort you even from God's word to remember that you can never rightly assess God's power and ability based on your present circumstances. He's always doing much more than you could possibly fathom for his glory, and for your good. In the most unexpected way, after 500 years of prophetic silence, God is now shattering that silence with this man named John. And even God is beginning to wake up his people after centuries of slumber in the most unexpected way. And so if you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, you might remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the news of Aslan being on the move caused a stir in Narnia. And in the same way, God's word coming to John caused no small amount of of a tizzy in and around Jerusalem. Because John, in so many ways, was guaranteed to attract attention. If you had seen John, you would have seen very rugged clothing. He had a camel's hair tunic wrapped with a leathery belt. He came from the wilderness which was God's traditional meeting place when his, with his prophets. I think if you even happened to see him, he would have cut a gaunt and leathery figure as we're told in Matthew's gospel that his desert diet consisted of locusts dipped in wild honey. The sight, the sound, even the smell of John the Baptist would have evoked in believing Jews in the first century memories of that other prophet that came from the wilderness with power, 
preaching God's covenant to his people. That prophet Elijah in the Old Testament, the very prophet that we're even told back in Luke chapter 1 in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, the very spirit in whom John now comes and performs his prophetic ministry. And notice what we're told about his ministry in verse 3. We're told he went out into all the region around the Jordan River proclaiming a baptism. Now, if you were a first century Jew at this time in redemptive history, baptism had only one significance for you. It was something Gentiles did in order to become part of the Israelite covenant community. Jews never were baptized. It was something that the Gentiles were required to do. It was symbolic of their washing away, of their sin, of their iniquity, in order to be received into the covenant community. And what we know from the four gospel authors in the Bible is that John bursts forth and he says that the Jews are the ones that need to be baptized. That it's the Israelites that are in fact unclean before God. And they must go through this ritual of baptism to prepare their hearts for the coming Redeemer. Because it is important to know that John's baptism is not the same thing as Christian baptism. What even we were able to observe earlier in this service. Uh, Particularly Acts chapter 19 makes this clear. John's baptism was a preparatory one. It was to get God's people ready for God's Redeemer. And you'll notice as verse 3 continues that it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you were with us several weeks ago and we studied Gabriel, the angel Gabriel's words to John's father Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, we saw in verses 16 and 17 that John's ministry was summed up with this word of turning. Gabriel told Zechariah that John would come and turn the hearts of the Israelites back to their God. And turning is the essence of what it means to walk in repentance. It means turning away from sin and turning to God in faith, and in new obedience. So kids, what does it mean to repent? Well, the, the kids' catechism that our children are learning and memorizing at home has a simple question in it that says, what does it mean to repent? And the answer is to be sorry for sin, to hate it and forsake it, because it's displeasing to God. That's a pretty decent definition of what it means to repent, and we also need to see from verse three is the inextricable link John makes between repentance and forgiveness. Do you see that? It is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You can't have the latter, forgiveness, without the former, repentance. And even Luke's gospel is going to go on and make clear to us has how repentance is the central response for anyone who rightly hears and understands the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repentance lies at the center of true gospel ministry. And so if you're a member here at a Redeemer Presbyterian Church, I hope that you might add to your prayer list, if it's not already on there, that this church would be one that delights in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is zealous with the good news, of Jesus Christ. And John's ministry of repentance is going to remind us that if we want to be fixated on the gospel, we will necessarily focus on repentance. In our praying, in our preaching, 
in our counseling, discipling, leading, serving, loving. There ought to be always an intentional aim after repentance. And we'll see in just a minute how it's more than just a mere profession, one time of faith in Jesus Christ. So John's ministry of repentance is attracting all kinds of attention in and around Jerusalem. And Luke also wants us to know that it fulfills an age-old prophecy. You'll notice in verses 4 through 6, he quotes from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. This age-old prophecy that one was going to come And John is that person, this voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to make God's people and even all flesh, notice verse 6, ready to see God's salvation. So in the ancient world, when a king was going to come into a city, he expected to receive a royal magisterial welcome, which meant often that the citizens of that given city would prepare for his coming by constructing a, a well-constructed highway on which the king could enter into the city. And when the highway was constructed, the king would send his herald ahead on that highway into the city, announcing the king's pending arrival, saying, make way for the coming king. And in light of Isaiah 40, and what the Bible says about John's fulfillment of Isaiah's centuries-old prophecy, what we find out is that John the Baptist is that highway herald of Jesus Christ. He is the one coming to make God's people ready to receive the King of Kings. That he's going to make straight the crooked paths in the souls of God's people. That every valley in the heart he's going to, through his ministry, fill up. He's going to bring low every mountain in the mind that objects to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. He's going to make a people ready for Jesus Christ. And they're going to be ready insofar as they are known by their repentance. Repentance, then, you might even think about it this way, is the highway on which Christ comes into a heart. It is the only way that Christ ever comes into any individual soul, through that highway of repentance. Our little children, as we drive around the city, will often shout out from the back seat, are we on the highway? Uh, There's something, I think, about being up higher and driving faster that they uh, really enjoy. And it may just be the most important question that some of you might ask of your own heart this morning, am I on the highway? The highway of repentance that I might receive Jesus Christ. This is John's ministry of repentance and now we want to give our attention in the remainder of the text to his message of repentance. There are many stories in church history of gospel preachers preaching the good news of Jesus with great courage and zeal. Uh, One of my favorites comes from a Methodist preacher named Peter Cartwright in the mid-19th century. One day he went to his Methodist church and he found out that President Andrew Jackson was going to be present in the congregation that morning. And so the church leaders at his local congregation came up to Cartwright because he was well known for his bold declarations in his preaching. And they said, "Uh, Pastor Cartwright, just don't say anything out of line today because the president is going to be seated before you. And so as the service got to its point when the sermon was going to be delivered, he got up, got behind the pulpit, Pastor Cartwright, and he said, I am told this day that President Andrew Jackson is among us. 
And I've been told not to say anything out of accord. And he stared out on the congregation and said, but I tell you, if Peter, I'm sorry, if Andrew Jackson does not repent, he too is going to go to hell. (laughs) And it's bold preaching, courageous preaching, relentless preaching that does mirror John the Baptist in so many ways because notice how his message of repentance begins in verse 7. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Surely that would have been shocking to hear. He doesn't come forth in his preaching from the wilderness saying, brothers and fathers in the Jerusalem Presbytery. He doesn't say, dearly beloved congregation, my brothers and sisters in the Lord, faithful friends and fellow citizens of God's covenant nation, Israel. He says what? You snakes. And even the import of his question in verse 7 simply says, what makes you think you will flee God's coming wrath? How about that for a sermonic starter? He knew that these people were coming out to him in the wilderness to be baptized, and yet they were prone to miss the whole point of the baptism itself, because what's required of them that they would escape God's coming wrath? You'll see his command, notice in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So it's necessary even here to pause, reflect and examine even our own hearts. Have you made a profession of repentance in Jesus Christ? John would say, good. But you must also live a life that proves that repentance by keeping fruits of repentance each and every day. It's as though he's saying to this crowd out there in the wilderness, yes, you must be baptized, but you also must have a baptized life. It's not enough to merely say that you believe in Jesus Christ. Your life must be in the Spirit's power, a living epistle of Jesus Christ as you bear fruits in keeping with Repentance. Perhaps it might be a wonderful thing you can do this week with a trusted friend or family member is examine your own life with them. Does your ordinary life in Christ over the last few years, however long you've been walking with the Lord, exhibit, proclaim, give visible fruit of your repentance towards Jesus Christ? And I'm quite convinced that if you had asked Jesus early in his ministry to name his favorite preacher, he would have certainly said John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist is even a, a great model, I think, for many preachers today from which we can learn. He got so much right in his preaching of Christ. And one thing even he shows us in this text is how he knew his audience very well. He knew the presuppositions and preconditions present in the people before him that would lead them to object to his gospel preaching. Because notice how he does that as verse 8 continues. He says, Do not even begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able 
from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. If you were to study, you wouldn't even have to do it for very long, into the gospel messages of John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ, you you would discover that the Jewish people had one consistent objection to their gospel preaching. It was a reliance on their ethnic identity as Israelites. The gospel would go forth from one of God's messengers or even the Lord himself, and the people would say, hold on a second, gospel preacher. We're children of Abraham. We have the sign of the covenant. We belong in the covenant community of the people of God. And John and Jesus so often hear that, look back at the crowd in response and say, yes, yes, yes. But it does not matter if you do not repent and believe and prove that repentance even in your life. You see, faithful preachers are always going to be unusually sensitive and even able to remove crutches that crowds rely on other than the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That's what John the Baptist is doing here out in the wilderness. He's removing the crutch on which the Israelites were prone to rely for their very redemption and salvation. Might you even be in here this morning thinking that you will flee from God's coming wrath. And yet on further examination, you realize that what you are leaning on, resting on, is a mere crutch of religion. Something like walking down an aisle so long ago to make a public profession of faith. Maybe even a baptism. I've served so long in leadership positions in the church. I come from a godly family. My parents have raised me in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't you know how many good deeds I have done in my life? And John's here to say, however good and even vital those things may be, they are insufficient in and of themselves to cause God's wrath to run away from you. What is required is fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance that is turning away from any sort of birthright claim you might make related to religion, turning away from any sort of self-reliance and turning alone to Jesus Christ and his mercy and grace that is freely offered to you in the gospel. This is John's message of repentance. And you'll notice that once his lecture ends, a Q&A session ensues. Look at verses 10 through 14. We have the crowds, the tax collectors, and the soldiers coming to John and asking the simple and necessary question. Okay, John, we hear that you're demanding fruits of repentance. Well, what does that look like for us? So he says, notice to the crowds in verse 11, here's what it looks like for you. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. To the tax collectors, he says in verse 13, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And then to the soldiers in verse 14, notice the end, he commands them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. In this specific situation, at least, that's what fruits that keep with repentance would look like for these individuals, for these groups of people. And it's surely no small, significant mark 
to notice that in each one of John's three exhortations, he is focusing his attention on wealth and possessions. For isn't it so true that few things reveal the reality of our repentance as what we do with credit cards, checkbooks, and cash? You must repent, John says, in order to receive Jesus Christ and bear fruits in keeping with that repentance. A few years ago, Emily bought from a garage sale a dresser that she wanted to put in one of the kids' rooms, and she wanted to give it a little bit of a makeover. So I had called my father-in-law, who has all the tools you could ever possibly want in his garage, and asked for his power sander. So he brought it over to the house, and I began to sand down that dresser in order to make it ready to receive a, a new paint job. And what I would have you think of even this morning is John the Baptist preaching as something like sanctified sandpaper. There's a roughness to it. But it's a roughness that in God's economy is required to make God's people ready for his son. And what I even want you to begin to see as we conclude our study is how John's ministry, John's message, However unpopular it surely is in our time, is no less than the very message and ministry that Christ has given to us. If you flip over to Luke chapter 24, the last chapter in this gospel, you might even read through it later this afternoon, uh, what you would find the Lord Jesus Christ doing just before he ascends into heaven is give the church its marching orders. How they are to live and minister with his poured out spirit's power. And you'll notice in verse 47 of Luke chapter 24 that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in my name to all the nations. There is something about our ministry and message in Christ and for Christ that is to mirror John the Baptist. And so as we do begin to conclude, I want you to notice just a couple of things about John's gospel proclamation. Maybe things that ought to also be true of our life and ministry together. The first of which is we need to notice how John's gospel proclamation always warned against mere religiosity. Warned against mere religiosity. I'm quite convinced that anytime a preacher stands in front of a people in our country, and it's probably the same anywhere you would go in the world, there are at least four different groups of people that would be present in that congregation. You would have the unsaved that have no interest in Jesus Christ whatsoever. You have a second group of people that are unsaved but are seeking after the truth of Jesus Christ. You have this third category of people that make a profession of faith with their lips but deny that very profession with their lives. Then you have the fourth category of people who make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and are proving that as they're growing and serving and increasing in loving fruits of repentance before the Lord. Now what you need to know from the gospel authors is that John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ always reserved their sternest and strongest warnings against the third category. People who profess Christ with their lips, but deny him with their very lives. Could you even be in here today 
And as you examine your heart with the Spirit's help and realize that's you, that you are relying on simple, mere religious performance to bring acceptance with God. And the warning ought to be stern. The warning from us ought to be strong that such a life deserves God's coming wrath. So flee from it by bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. And then the second thing that John wants us to know and we ought to see from his gospel proclamation is how it always points to urgency and sincerity in repentance. Look at what he says in verse 9. He tells these crowds in the wilderness, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The image is quite amazing when you think about it, that God's axe of wrath hovers just over the roots of these individual lives and it is ready and it is soon going to fall upon that tree that doesn't bear good fruit and throw it into the fire of hell. And we are going to go wrong if we don't think that God's judgment still works that way today. Could it not be possible that some of you might sit in here this morning and from this text realize for the first time that God's blade of judgment is hovering just over your life? Ready to swing. Ready to cut down. And yet God in his mercy and patience hasn't done it yet because you're here. Even as 2 Peter chapter 3 says, the Lord is not slow as some count slowness, for he desires all people to come to repentance. So may this morning be the first time that you have truly turned from your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we minister this gospel of repentance and preach its message, we should always be about the business of reminding people as we do so that it is a matter of urgency. It's a matter of sincerity as we keep fruits and repentance in our entire life. So it was about 135 years ago that the Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle preached on this very passage in Luke chapter 3, and he got to a point in his exposition, I think it was, of verse 9, where he began to give a contemporary assessment of the preaching in his day. And he said this, a morbid dislike to strong language an excessive fear of giving offense, a constant flinching from directness and plain speaking are, unhappily, too much the characteristics of the modern Christian pulpit. If such was the truth then, how much more might it be now? I'm sure that you need not me to explain very long how John's ministry and message is a quite unwelcome one in our time. We don't need preaching, many people might say, full of warnings. What we need are wooings and welcomings to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd have you see this morning that yes, we need wooings and welcomings, but we also need warnings. Because we're going to go wrong if we don't realize that minimizing the warning does nothing less than minimize the amazing grace and love of Jesus Christ. To warn against the coming wrath that falls upon unrepentance 
is to exalt Jesus Christ because when you see him on the tree of Calvary drowning under the horror and terror of God's wrath, what you see is eternal, unimaginable love keeping him there. So to warn against the horror of wrath actually is to love people and to even love Jesus Christ who drank it all in for those that would turn from their sin and trust in him. So J.C. Ryle may have said that in his time, directness and plainness in the preaching of the gospel was missing from his modern church. But let it never be said of us, of, of this church, of this pulpit. May we love Christ enough, love people enough to warn them that wrath is coming if you do not turn. May we pray for the Spirit's movement in our lives individually and in our life corporately, that He would blow through our midst with such power that our fruits of repentance would be evident to all. For that is in part why Christ has poured out His Spirit upon us. So you can even leave, and I pray that you do this morning, confident that He who began a good work in you will complete it and make you ready for the day of Jesus Christ. So may John's ministry, may John's message mirror something of our own. And if it does, we'll be ready. Ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ by repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are indeed a God who has loved us and that you show your love for us, that you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He satisfied your wrath that we deserved, and he did so in the fullness of love. Lord, this call to come to Christ is an urgent one, and it is a necessary one, and help us to feel that afresh, or maybe for the first time this morning. Lord, give us indeed confidence and assurance in the Spirit's power that he will work his fruits of the Spirit within us to the glory of your name. So let us live in trust and reliance upon Christ and the Spirit that he has poured out into our hearts. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.